Welcome back to the Thinking West Great Books Explored podcast. I'm Christian Poole. Here we dive deep into the most influential books of all time, read short essays and letters from the greatest thinkers, and discuss timeless ideas that continue to shape our culture today. Subscribe and study the great books along with us. Consider supporting us at thinkingwest.com to help keep us reading and sharing the good news of these great books. This episode is on Plato's Phaedo, the third and final work in the trilogy of Socrates' trial, imprisonment, and execution. Here, the father of Western philosophy meets his end. News travels slowly in ancient Greece. Even things as important as the fate of Socrates reached relatively nearby cities only when an informed traveler makes their way to share the news by word of mouth or by letter. It's a rare thing in history to know of distant news within the day, even many days. There was no instant news app, radio, or websites to find out what happened in the last few hours in lands far away. Even things as big as a war could go unnoticed to villagers for months. For example, many rural British colonists in the Americas didn't know that they were now Americans until long after the fact. News was exceedingly slow. And so the namesake of this work, Phaedo, is a traveler from Athens to a city called Phleas, a city in the northeast of the Peloponnese, that peninsular landscape famously occupied to the little further southwest by Sparta. Now this Phaedo was a high-born native of Elis, captured in a war as a boy by enemy Athenian forces aiding the Spartans, and then sold into slavery. He didn't have a good start. Fortunately, this slave met Socrates and had his ransom paid for, possibly by the infamous Alcibiades, or Crito, or Cibes. He wore his hair long in the quote, Spartan style, and quickly took interest in philosophy under the tutelage of Socrates. Though only going with Socrates for less than two years, Phaedo returned to Elis and founded what's called the Elian School of Philosophy, of which very little is known. If only we could know what all these other schools said. Going into some of these works, I thought there were only a small handful of such schools in ancient Greece, chiefly the Socratic and Pythagorean schools, but now it's apparent there were a plurality of schools around this time and the time after. This Elian school would later be moved by his disciples to Eritrea. Unfortunately, we don't have any extant works of Phaedo, but he did write in dialogues like Plato. Various debates exist on what things he may have written or otherwise influenced in the writings of later writers, however. So he did leave some mark on the modern world, though in a much smaller way than his friend Socrates. Regardless, Phaedo travels some time after the execution of Socrates to Phleas, where he encounters Echocrates, a man whom we know nothing about. Echocrates has many questions, as there's been virtually no news of the trial of Socrates and Phlea from Athens, and so few have traveled either way. Echocrates asks, quote, Were you yourself, Phaedo, in the prison with Socrates on the day when he drank the poison? End quote. And so this work, called Phaedo, is primarily Plato's account of Phaedo's account of the death of Socrates. We've got the little game of telephone going on in ancient Greece. Now, Phaedo appears to be familiar, at least in name, with many of those nearest to Socrates. According to Phaedo, the friends of Socrates at his death included Apollodorus, a particularly emotional one, Critobulus and his father Crito, whom we introduced in the last episode, Hermogenes, now, there are many Hermogenes throughout history, but this one was a philosopher from a notable family. He 
was a first-hand source for Xenophon's account of Socrates' trial. And so you see how many of these things are all interconnected. There's also Epigenes, Aeschines, not the statement, Aeschines, to be born about ten years after the events here. Antisthenes, who became founder of the Cynic philosophy that advocated an ascetic and virtuous life, and who has a prior student to Gorgias before Socrates. Sisyphus, of the Deme of Penea, and lastly, Menexenus. Notably, Plato, the author, was not there. Oh, sick. What a time to be uh, out of school, so to speak. Others there include Simeus and Kibes of Thebes, who will play a central role in much of the discussion here. Phaedondes and Euclid of Megara. Now, this is not the Euclid known in mathematics, mind you. And then there's also Terpsion, who came from Megara as well. So we have quite a crowd here around Socrates on his final day with us. One thing that disturbed Echocrates was that Socrates had to wait in prison for some time before his death. As Phaedo explains, and we covered in the previous episode on Plato's Crito, Socrates just happened to be condemned while the ceremonious journey from Athens to the small, sacred island of Delos was undertaken by the ship of Theseus, the very famous ship of Theseus, during which time no one could be executed in Athens. Hence, Socrates' execution was delayed until the ship returned. But while in prison, he was visited all day, every day, by his friends until the day of his execution. And his wife, Xanthippe, was, quote, sitting by him, holding his child in her arms. Now, as the day of his execution had arrived, all those mentioned previously gathered outside his cell and were allowed to spend the day with Socrates until his departure from this earth. As Socrates' chains were removed, he said to his friends, quote, How singular is the thing called pleasure, and how curiously related to pain, which might be thought to be the opposite of it. For they are never present to a man at the same instant, and yet he who pursues either is generally compelled to take the other. End quote. So in the final hours, they of course will spend it talking about philosophy. It's the last Q&A with Socrates, and Kibis opens with something I view more as an icebreaker, a weird, light-hearted question that in itself is unfit for Socrates' last moments, but provides reprieve from the solemn nature of the day. He asks why Socrates has spent his time in jail apparently composing verses from Aesop into verse and a hymn in honor of Apollo, as he has never composed anything before. Socrates answers that he once had a dream to, quote, cultivate and make music, which he largely regarded as figurative and meant to keep in pursuit of philosophy. However, now in his last days, he thought it safe to think of it literally and compose some music as directed by this old dream. Kibis proves in this dialogue to be a keen and cautious student, often pushing for further clarity, offering counter-arguments, and generally withholding decision until he feels all doubt dissolved about an issue. As the work Crito highlighted, Socrates chose to remain for his execution instead of fleeing to save his life for several reasons, one among them that the philosopher should be ready to die when the time comes. And so this willingness to embrace his execution has his students wondering how this differs from suicide. We might ask the same. After all, if you're sitting on railroad tracks and see a train coming for you and you decide not to move, is this not suicide? On this subject, Kibis asks not whether suicide is wrong, but why suicide is wrong. While at the same time, Socrates says a philosopher should be willing to die in his circumstance. 
Nowadays, it seems we hardly argue why suicide is wrong, but when it is acceptable. A sad state for the world. Kibes and Simeus, both from Thebes, were disciples of Philolaus, a prominent Pythagorean, and interestingly a very early critic of geocentrism, to believe that the Earth was not the center of the universe, almost 2,000 years before the idea was seriously challenged by Copernicus. Unless we fall into that prideful thinking that we are so much the more intelligent than those earlier thinkers like Aristotle, who genuinely believed that the Earth was a center, first realize a geocentric model makes complete sense with nearly all scientific observation until the telescope was invented. As an example, the earlier observers of the skies reasoned that if the Earth wasn't the center of the universe, the relative positions of the stars that composed the constellations would change over time. This makes for some very good reasoning. The only problem was that they had no way yet of estimating just how truly far away the stars were. Hence, the shapes of the constellations changed far too subtly for their eyes to detect. And consider also how we identify many of the same constellations the Greeks spoke of the Big Dipper, Orion, Pisces, and so on. Enough of the Earth and stars, however, though no doubt we will return to them in future episodes. Back to the subject of suicide, Philolaus, the teacher of Kibes and Simeus, also affirmed suicide was wrong. But the students never understood his reasoning, and so they asked Socrates for his. Socrates' response is telling. He skips all appeals to lesser arguments and goes straight for the heart with an appeal to theology, saying, quote, There is a doctrine whispered in secret that man is a prisoner who has no right to open the door and run away. I, too, believe that the gods are our guardians, and that we men are a possession of theirs. End quote. He says we are possessions of the divine. Some might think this implies mere playthings, but Socrates speaks of the gods also of being guardians. Hence, while I agree much of Greek mythology makes out mankind to be little more than curious pets, the god also displays great care for humans at times. In the worst light, when we would be bad pets of the gods if suicide were to be undertaken, in the best light, however, our lives are gifts from above, we have no right to refuse such a divine gift. This latter understanding would be affirmed in the Christian world centuries later. Kibis provides a quite reasonable response to Socrates, asking how then a wise man can flee from the life here governed by the gods. Kibis provides a quite reasonable response to Socrates, asking how then can a wise man flee from the life here governed by the gods? And the motivation of this question is in understanding Socrates' justification for his own willingness to die. In a sense, Kibis is, by Socrates' analog, Asking how, then, a willing slave of the gods can free himself through death, Socrates praises his earnestness, saying, quote, Here is a man who is always inquiring, and is not so easily convinced by the first thing which he hears. End quote. If I'm to be honest, my view of many of Socrates' followers is that of the bobblehead. Nodding in agreement to whatever is said, you encounter such bobbleheads everywhere, but especially in a meeting or classroom when no one wants to appear ignorant or combative. Kibis is not a bobblehead, and for that, one of my favorite students of Socrates. And in this work, Phaedo, it's his pushing back that drives much of the discussion. To answer Kibis, Socrates sets out to show that death is not to be feared for the philosopher. Rather, quote, the real philosopher has reason to be of good cheer when he's about to die. 
and that after death he may hope to obtain the greatest good in the other world. There is something greater after death to both Socrates and the later Christians, and hence we do not run from death when it's in the cards for us because we ascend to something greater. In their master-slave analogy between the gods and man, a slave should not seek to free himself, but if his shackles are rusting away, he should accept that freedom willingly and cheerfully. To Socrates, death is a separation of soul from body, and he and his followers agree that philosophers ought not to care for worldly pleasures, but rather singularly for virtues, like courage and temperance. To them, the body is an imperfect instrument through which the soul can get at the truth. Socrates says, quote, For the body is a source of endless trouble to us by reason of the mere requirement of food, and is liable also to diseases which overtake and impede us in search after true being. It fills us full of loves and lusts and fears and fancies of all kinds, an endless foolery. And in fact, as men say, takes away from us the power of thinking at all. End quote. And hence to Socrates and his friends, the body is a shell, and that shell should be forgotten in favor of greater things, namely wisdom. No price is too high, even death for the ultimate prize. And Socrates asked Simeus, quote, Is there not one true coin for which all things ought to be exchanged? And that is wisdom. End quote. Next, our solemn meeting takes the discussion to the soul itself, and its fate upon death. You would imagine no greater questions could be on the mind of a man destined to die in mere hours. In fact, the questions of the soul in the work Phaedo are so central that for many readers, writers, and thinkers in antiquity, this work was also called On the Soul. A much better name, in my opinion. I never was a fan of the names ascribed to Plato's works, often based solely on the name of some individual involved, like Crito, Timaeus, and Phaedo. Anyway, Socrates begins to argue that the soul survives death by observing a nature of many opposites, specifically that some quality often develops from that quality's opposite. He explains, quote, And that which becomes less must have once been greater, and then have become less and the weaker is generated from the stronger, and the swifter from the slower, and the worse is from the better, and the more just is from the more unjust. End quote. Then he applies this pattern of something coming from its opposite to death and life. Whereas we typically think of life and to death as a one-way street, they conclude that the living hence comes from the dead just as much as the dead come from the living. And Socrates and Kibis conclude that the soul of the dead must exist in some place out of which they can come again. The argument of Socrates plays on the analogy of death to sleep and life to waking, and the resemblance of several such processes. According to Socrates, all knowledge is merely a recollection from an experienced soul. Hence we acquired knowledge before our birth. Socrates explains, quote, And if we acquired this knowledge before we were born, and were born having the use of it, then we also knew before we were born, and at the instant of birth, not only the equal of the greater or the less, but all other ideas. For we are not speaking only of equality, but of beauty, goodness, justice, holiness, and all which we stamp with the name of essence in the dialectical process, both when we ask and when we answer questions. End quote. He concludes... Quote, 
Then, Simeus, our souls must also have existed without bodies before they were in the form of man, and must have had intelligence. End quote. In Socrates and his followers' conceptions, the body is a mere instrument of the soul. The body is seen as a changeable thing, the soul as unchangeable. And more close to the constant things of the universe, like truth, beauty, wisdom. I will add that, in my opinion, these ideas, beauty, equality, etc., are not known because we acquired these ideas in a past life, but that these ideas exist by themselves beyond merely our comprehension of them. Hence we learn them, as Socrates professes, through our mortal lifetime, but not because we are remembering them, but because we are recognizing them. Again, just my opinion, but I can't help to interject every once in a while. Anyway, their argument stems from the fear of Simeus and Kibes and others that, quote, when the man dies, the soul will be dispersed, and that this may be the extinction of her, end quote. It's quite a fear. We all might secretly fear the same, despite our different beliefs. Anyway, Kibes and Simeus are not fully satisfied, and I guess that many today are probably not well settled on this question either. Every thinking person has at one time or another feared that the soul, their very being, might be extinguished at the end of their life. Even many devout religious face such thoughts at times. Though Kibis and Simeas are convinced a soul exists before death, they're not sure a soul exists after death and go on to challenge their teacher to ease their fears. After all, it's now or never. Plato wrote, quote, Kibis answered with a smile. Then, Socrates, you must argue us out of our fears. And yet, strictly speaking, they are not our fears, but there is a child within us, to whom death is a sort of hobgoblin. Him, too, we must persuade not to be afraid when he is alone in the dark. End quote. I love this line by Kibis. Him, too, we must persuade not to be afraid when he is alone in the dark. We are like children who are afraid of what we cannot see past, that curtain of death. And it's Socrates here who is going to cure them of that fear. Socrates summarizes, quote, Then reflect, Kibis, of all which has been said, is not this the conclusion, that the soul is in the very likeness of the divine, and immortal, and intellectual, and uniform, and indissoluble, and unchangeable, and that the body is in the very likeness of the human, and mortal, and unintellectual, and multiform, and dissoluble and changeable. End quote. The 17th century English poet and civil servant John Milton wrote of the soul's relation to the body in a very similar way in his work Comus, stating that by worldly sins, quote, the soul grows clotted by contagion, embodies, and embrutes, till she quite lose the divine property of her first being. End quote. To both Socrates and Milton, the soul is only spoiled by its inhabitation of an imperfect body. But the soul itself is a divine entity, and Socrates ascribes to such divinity immortal characteristics. Neither Kibis nor Simeus are yet convinced. Simeus reluctantly encounters by comparing the soul and body to music and a lyre. Quote, Suppose a person to use the same argument about harmony and lyre. Might he not say that harmony is a thing invisible, incorporeal, perfect, divine, existing in the lyre which is harmonized, but that the lyre and the strings are matter and material, composite, earthy, and akin to mortality, end quote. In other words, music is a thing like the soul, but requires something more to light the lyre to produce it. And when the lyre breaks, as it eventually will, 
the music dies with it. Socrates is at first without an answer and actually compliments Simeus, admitting Simeus has, quote, reason on his side, end quote, and force in his attack upon him. Kibis provides another analogy against Socrates, that of a weaver and his coat, which we will return to in time after much digression, but anyway, the weaver and the coat go something like this. Now, we might at first say that what is stronger outlives the weaker, but when the weaver dies and his coat remains, do we conclude that the coat is greater than the weaver, and that if the coat survives, the weaver must still be alive as well? No. Then if the soul is the weaver, who inhabits many bodies or coats, and outlives them, might there similarly be a death, a final death, of the soul, the weaver? Though the soul might outlive one body, might it reach an end to its own lifetime? Kibi says, quote, I maintain that he who is confident about death has but a foolish confidence, unless he is able to prove that the soul is altogether immortal and imperishable. But if he cannot prove the soul's immortality, he who is about to die will always have reason to fear that when the body is disunited, the soul also may utterly perish. End quote. But anyway, there's a break here, and Echocrates shares his worry over Kibi's argument to our narrator Phaedo. There's a break in the narrated story, and Echocrates shares his worry over Kibi's argument to our narrator Phaedo. Remember, this is being told through the words of Plato, through the words of Phaedo, to Echocrates. Phaedo says of Socrates, quote, what astonished me was, first, the gentle and pleasant and approving manner in which he received the words of the young men, and then his quick sense of the wound which had been inflicted by the argument, and the readiness with which he healed it. He might be compared to a general rallying his defeated and broken army, urging them to accompany him and return to the field of argument. End quote. Now remember, even on the battlefield, Socrates was thought a brave man exemplified by his apparent rescue of Alcibiades in the Battle of Potidaea in 432 BC. Back to Socrates, he warns his followers first not to blindly follow his words, fearing the damaging effects of discovering something long-held true is actually false. He tells them, quote, Lest we become misologists, no worse thing can happen to a man than this, end quote. As Socrates explains, misanthropists, who are haters of people, become so because at one time they have put their trust in a person who turns out to break that trust. If this happens enough times, we learn to trust no one, and even to hate all people as we find no good men, thus becoming misanthropists. And so the same thing, too, can happen regarding the hatred of ideas, or misology. He admits how unfortunate it would be if, quote, a man should have lighted upon some argument or other, which at first seemed true and then turned out to be false, and instead of blaming himself and his own want of wit, because he is annoyed, should at last be too glad to transfer the blame from himself to arguments in general, and forever afterwards should hate and revile them, and lose truth and the knowledge of realities. End quote. Socrates tells his students to keep to the integrity of what they hold true because it is true not for his sake, not to simply preserve their teacher's pride. Insist, they think, quote, of the truth and not of Socrates, end quote, and to be wary of any untruths, even from their teacher, lest he, like the bee, leave his sting in them before his death. Fantastic line, by the way, that I paraphrase there. 
But then he goes on to address Kibi's concern in seemingly roundabout fashion, beginning with an account first of his initial interest in natural science. Yes, it is quite a digression that Socrates makes before returning to the argument of the weaver in the coat, but bear with me. Socrates read an earlier philosopher called Anaxagoras, who said, quote, The mind was the disposer and cause of all. End quote. Anaxagoras' primary interests were in the natural world, and his wor work got quite a few concepts right by modern standards. He believed all matter was composed of many subcomponents, always in some mixture, rather than each thing being pure in a substance, which is remarkably like the atomic description of matter. Few things in our natural world are atomically pure. For example, sand is not a single atomic substance, but primarily silicon and oxygen. Anaxagoras, who was two generations before Socrates, also deduced a correct explanation for eclipses and understood the sun to be a large ball of fire in the sky, though its proportions of scale were understandably off for the time. So Socrates turned to the work of Anaxagoras, who was keenly interested in the workings of the cosmos, and Socrates hoped to learn why the sun and the moon and the stars moved as they, as they did, and whether the earth was flat or round. He had lofty expectations for this reading, but was greatly disappointed. He then describes an example of how Anaxagoras, making an initial statement in agreement with Socrates, goes on in detail to describe merely material causes for human action, which is of a key concern to Socrates here. Socrates says disapprovingly, quote, Any power which, in arranging them as they are, arranges them for the best, never enters into their minds, and instead of finding any superior strength in it, they rather expect to discover another atlas of the world, who is stronger and more everlasting and more containing than the good. End quote. He's complaining of philosophers always looking for a more fundamental cause, which is not a bad thing in itself. But they're always looking for another reason underneath the reason. I think of this idea how modern day physics always seems to aim for finding ever more fundamental particles to explain the universe. When atoms consisting of protons, electrons, and neutrons was not enough, physicists search for even more fundamental particles that make up the intermediary particles like quarks, leptons, and all sorts of whimsically named things. And these endeavors are not little science experience, they're billion dollar projects like the Large Hadron Collider. So we care very much about digging deeply and finding the reasons underneath the reasons, no matter how small they might be. What Socrates is describing here is a method of studying the world through observation rather than through a deduction from principles, which Socrates prefers. Socrates seems to think that merely studying the world as it appears is insufficient for a true explanation of the world, that we are bound to constantly find ever more ultimate causes for the physical happenings of our universe, always to find another gear turning this gear or that gear. Socrates instead assumes his most fundamental tenet, one he believes irrefutable, and then applies reason to that axiom to deduce the workings of the world. Socrates is wary of using his senses to understand the world, as he says, quote, So in my own case I was afraid that my soul might be blinded altogether, if I looked at things with my eyes or tried to apprehend them by the help of the senses. And I thought that I had better have recourse to the world of mind and seek there the truth of existence. End quote. Socrates believes his mind to be a more trustworthy way to sense the world than his own sight, hearing, smell, and touch. 
In his words, he describes his method for determining what the causes of things are this way. Quote, this was the method which I adopted. I first assumed some principle which I judged to be the strongest, and then I affirmed as true whatever seemed to agree with this, whether relating to the cause or to anything else, and that which I disagreed I regarded as untrue. Quote. So stepping back from our digression here, Socrates returns to address Kibi's point about the weaver and the coat, and how the latter may outlast its maker, though it is certainly not greater. Socrates goes on to argue that opposite qualities like smallness and greatness can never change to their opposites without perishing in the change. If something small becomes great, it no longer has the property of smallness. However, a student objects, saying this principle is contrary to a previous assertion, that out of the greater comes the lesser, and out of the lesser comes the greater, something Socrates said earlier. Socrates admires his courage, but works his way out of the conundrum because the original principle pertained to the concrete, while this principle, about the unchangeability of opposites, pertains to the eternally true, that which nature can't violate. Sometimes Socrates appears to work out these convoluted arguments like a master chess player working from the end backwards, and other times he appears to worm his way out of them on some technicality. Here Socrates is making the distinction of qualities, or principles, versus concrete objects. His argument is that things that are not opposites may still oppose things that contain opposite natures. It's hard to wrap our hands around, but for example, fire is not the opposite of cold. But fire possesses heat, which is the opposite of cold. Or another one, the number three is not opposed to evenness, but rather the oddness of the number three is what is opposed to even evenness. So I agree with Socrates here. Things that are not opposites may possess qualities that are opposed to each other. Now let's summarize the rest of the argument of why the soul is immortal and does not perish. Because that's what all this talk is leading up to. The rest of the argument goes like this. One, the soul is what makes the body alive. Two, the opposite of life is death. Three, the soul cannot admit the opposite, death, of which it brings, life. Four, the principle which does not admit of death is called immortality. And five, this synthesizes the last two points, the soul does not admit of death, hence the soul is immortal. And Socrates concludes, Quote, then, Kibis, beyond question, the soul is immortal and imperishable, and our souls will truly exist in another world. End quote. Kibis and Simeus are satisfied with the arguments, though Simeus admits some uncertainty in light of man's feebleness and the greatness of the subject at hand, to which Socrates responds with great eloquence. Quote, but then, O oh my friends, he said, if the soul is really immortal, what care should be taken of her? not only in respect of the portion of time which is called life, but of eternity." End quote. And later he continues again, quote, There is no release or salvation from evil except the attainment of the highest virtue and wisdom. End quote. Now this brings us into the last two phases of this work, Phaedo, and the end of our trilogy. The ultimate phase is the death of our protagonist, Socrates, but before that, Socrates goes into some detail about his ideas on the form of the universe and on what happens upon death. 
While Socrates' ideas on the universe and the afterlife are quite interesting, we've been going on for some time now. So we'll shelve that part for future discussion and proceed to the grand finale of Phaedo, the most important part, even admitted by Mortimer Adler, who said that much of the discussion on the soul could actually just be skipped. He said this in an interview with uh, Bill Buckley on the firing line, which is out there still on YouTube today. But nonetheless, we've had fun going through the discussion of the soul in Phaedo, and now proceed to the best part, the grand finale, the death of Socrates. With Socrates' last discussions on philosophy in the universe finished, Crito asks if he has any last commands for them, to which Socrates asks only that they take care of themselves. Bluntly, though purely out of respect, Crito asks how they should bury him, to which Socrates responds with humor to do as is usual or whatever they think best. For the body is only a shell to them as opposed to the Christian view that both body and soul are important. Socrates notes that, quote, False works are not only evil in themselves, but infect the soul with evil. End quote. So his friends are not to say falsely that here is buried Socrates, or the like, since it will only be his body and not his soul there. Then Socrates goes to bathe with Crito, his great friend from the last episode. The narrator Phaedo, who is there with Socrates, then recalls, quote, So we remained behind, talking and thinking of the subject of discourse, and also the greatness of our sorrow. He was like a father of whom we were being bereaved, and we were about to pass the rest of our lives as orphans. Then Socrates' children, one elder and two young, visited after his bath, followed by the women of his family, to whom he gave some directions in the presence of Crito. The jailer, a servant of the Eleven, enters and commends Socrates as, quote, the noblest and gentlest, and best of all who ever came to this place, end quote, reminding him also that it is not his will, but the authority's will that it is to blame. He continues, quote, and so fare you well, and try to bear lightly what must needs be. You know my errand, end quote. Now at this point, the guard himself bursts into tears, and Socrates praises the guard for his genuine care of him. He immediately requests that the poison be brought, though Crito, his best friend, bids him to wait but a little longer. Socrates responds, saying, quote, I do not think I should gain anything by drinking the poison a little later. I should only be ridiculous in my own eyes for sparing and saving a life which is already forfeit. End quote. The servant and jailer return with an infusion of hemlock, the infamous plant known for its poisonous leaves, stems, seeds, and roots. Ingesting only a few leaves of poison hemlock can be fatal, and hence its use to create the deadly concoction before Socrates now. Hemlock was previously used to kill the Athenian statesman Theramenes only a few years before the events described here by Phaedo, and about ninety years later another statesman, Phocion the Good, would meet the same fate. Now, Phocion was quite the hero and would be a marvelous follow-up after Socrates because he was a statesman famed for his vow to poverty to preserve his own virtue and was considered the most honest member of the Athenian politics. He would often stand alone in opposition to the rest of the entire political class and stood defiantly against Macedon. Well, Athens killed this hero by hemlock too. It seems Athenians have a problem killing their best. Anyway, the jailer carrying the cup of hemlock describes its effects, accurately I might add, to Socrates as such. Quote, you have only to walk about until your legs are heavy, 
and then to lie down and the poison will act. End quote. These effects are sometimes described as an ascending muscular paralysis, which ultimately leads to death by an inability to breathe as the respiratory muscles are paralyzed. Another good thing to know while you're listening, since hemlock does exist in many places of the world today, is that the only way to avoid hemlock's poisonous effects is to avoid hemlock in the first place. There is no antidote. Socrates pauses to ask whether he can make a libation to a god to pray for a good journey from this world to the next. And the servant answers that they only make just enough for the work. Socrates drinks the poison, and the students all begin to weep. Socrates, perplexed, says, quote, What is this strange outcry? I sent away the women mainly in order that they might not misbehave this way. For I have been told that a man should die in peace. End quote. Socrates walked about till his legs felt heavy, then lay down. The poison worked its way up from the feet, through his legs, and approached his heart and lungs, where his life would cease. His last words were, quote, Crito, I owe a cock to Asclepius. Will you remember to pay the debt? End quote. Crito responds, quote, The debt shall be paid. Is there anything else? End quote. To which there was no answer. Crito then closed his lifelong friend's eyes. Phaeto ends his tale, saying, quote, Such was the end, Echocrates, of our friend, concerning whom I may truly say that of all the men of his time I have known, he was the wisest and justest and best. And thus concludes the trilogy of Socrates' trial, imprisonment, and execution, described in Plato's Apology, Crito, and Phaedo, respectively. Thanks for tuning in to the Great Books Explored podcast. If you enjoy the podcast and want to revive the great books and the great conversation in this absolutely insane digital age, please consider supporting us at thinkingwest.com donate. Culture is gone, decency is gone, reason is gone, and the cult of mind-numbing entertainment and news cycles aren't going to solve any of our problems. But there is a canon of philosophy, religion, history, thought, reason, and ideas found within these great books that have recorded in many instances dealt with the insanity of man for hundreds of years. The great books might not be the panacea for all our problems, but they are a start. Help me to re-educate and reorient mankind into understanding its place in history and the world by sharing this podcast everywhere and to everyone you can. Rate, subscribe, and leave a comment on Socrates' tragic end, its implications for today, and all the rest, but most importantly of all, read on. <laughs>